Good morning. My name is Alicia. Today's reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 11, verses 28 through 39. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's John chapter 11, starting with verse 28. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in kindergarten through fifth grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the back of the room to join Kids Commons upstairs if you so desire. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, folks. I grew up a back row Baptist, and so I'm feeling very comfortable in this church right now because half of you are back there, and I'm like, yes, that is where I would be too. Yeah, I am right there with you. Uh, my name is Mary Spetta. I am so excited to be here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for partnering with us in our work at Amira. <clears throat> uh, since I'm new here today, and usually when new people meet each other, they tell each other a little bit about themselves. So <clears throat> a couple things about me. First, I have a German Shepherd. She turned five on Friday, and I am an emotional wreck about it uh, because my baby is now 35 years old in dog years. Does any, are, do we have any other people in the room with dogs? Is any, yeah, yeah. My dog, has, she has three beds in our house, um, and she got a full steak dinner for her birthday. So if, um, if you're one of those dog people like me, I have five years of photos that we can go through after the service. Um, another thing about me, I'm a little nervous to go home today because my husband is making lunch. And uh, he, he recently got a subscription to Blue Apron, one of those services that like sends you the food and the recipes, etc. And he grew up, he, he, he knows how to make like very traditional Chinese foods that he made in his home he grew up in in Texas. But cooking anything else is a little... Uh, new to him. The first time he did this was about two weeks ago, and he was looking at the recipe. I was like, I'm going to hang out nearby just in case he needs help. He's looking at the recipe, and he goes, oh, you're supposed to put the cookie sheet in the oven before you do anything else? I look over his shoulder, and I say, babe, they want you to move the oven rack to the middle of the oven, the one that's already in the oven. That's the oven rack, not the cookie sheet. <laughs> it's like, this is going real well. <laughs> so I'm either going to go home to a delicious meal or something burnt on a cookie sheet. We'll see. Um, another thing about me, I have an Enneagram 8. Does anyone else here do Enneagrams? Yes. All right. 
Props to the Enneagram 8s in the room, especially the women. We, we get put in a box, for sure, in our culture. And something about Enneagram 8s, we are very intense in the way that we approach things that we do. For example, about six years ago, I was given the task of making a dessert for a party. And I could have done something simple, like, I don't know, a brownie box mix, which I probably should have done. I got a magazine, though, with a like four-tier cake with this epic decoration on it. And I was like, I'm going to make this cake. I was so determined, I even cut the page out of the magazine, and I was going to take it with me to the party to show people the cake. And the cake was going to look like it had fell out of the magazine. That cake looked like the magazine had fallen on it. And I have never made a cake since then. <laughs> but when I approach something, I am very intense about it. And so when I started journaling recently, does anyone else here journal? Yes. I have had a, a lifelong fear of journaling because I have always felt like it was somehow evidence. <laughs> Not like evidence of any criminal activity, um, but evidence of like what I really thought about a situation or what I really thought about myself or perspectives on things. And I recently, uh, when I started journaling, I came across this very thick book <clears throat> called The Assassin's Cloak. And the subtitle of it was An Anthology of the World's Greatest Diarists. And I was like, you can get points for being really good at journaling. <laughs> and and I was reading, as I was reading through the editor's description of this, it's a collection of, of all these people around the world, famous people and non-famous people, these excerpts from their diaries. And uh, he and his uh, a husband and wife team who edited this, and they, they described a great diary as a great betrayal. This, this idea that a good diary really reveals someone's deepest thoughts it shows us something about themselves that maybe they wouldn't necessarily have shown up in real life. And me being the Enneagram 8, embarking on journaling, my thought was, for me to be really good at this, I will betray myself so well. It will be great. I'm going to get an A plus in betraying myself. When I am dead and someone reads this, they will not be able to say, she was not real with this. And as I've gone through this process of journaling, it's given me a different perspective on what is included in Scripture. And of course we know that Scripture is, is um, it's absolutely dictated by what, what God has determined to be put in these pages. And this passage that we're looking at today, this passage of Lazarus being raised from the dead, in the Gospel of John, it's the only place in the Gospels where it shows up. The other three Gospels do not cover this story. Um, and the way that it is written, as well as the way that some of the rest of the book of John is written, we don't actually know who wrote the book of John, but it leads some scholars to believe that maybe Lazarus is the author of this book. The fact that this story is included, as well as some other things. The fact that this story is included, accompanied with the way that it is written, and the certain details in it, I think, is incredibly important in revealing the human and God, fully human, fully God nature of Christ. 
incredibly revealing in the character of God and in how we are to go with God into difficult moments. So we're going to do this a little narrative Bible study-esque this morning. If you have your Bible, I'm one of those folks that's old school. This is the same Bible I've had since I was eight years old, and hopefully the binding doesn't come off of it this morning, but we'll see. Um, We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 11. We're going to read this through this together, and I'm going to pause every now and then, and we're going to look at some major points that we can take away from this story. So starting in verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. I want to pause here because that account, that those first five verses set the stage for this story. They give us the context for this. In verse five, I think it's fascinating that all three individuals are named, and they're named in the context of Jesus's love. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. What does that tell us about Christ? It tells us something very, I think, important and unique, which is that he had an individual love for each of these people. He recognized them individually, their character, their experiences, They're different experiences of the same situations. And they had such a close relationship that Mary and Martha reached out to Jesus when Lazarus was sick, which in in that time, for them to reach out in this way was this recognition of if we tell Jesus that Lazarus is sick, he's going to show up. They're that close that they're able to do that. So this individual love, not just this love of a a creation, of um, a a being made in my image kind of a thing. But Jesus is recognizing each of them as individual humans, as individual people, for all that they are. We move forward then, starting in verse 6. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I am glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Really important point to keep in mind as we go through the story. Jesus already knows 
his friend is dead. But he's approaching this with a plan. In that verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. That, con- that contextual phrase there leads to a couple of very practical points, but also an understanding, because Jesus is referencing his time on earth, that he has been given a very specific amount of time for a very specific task, and he will accomplish that task within that time. And that practical application then is there's enough time to get this done. Jesus knows his friend is dead, but he's coming to this with a plan. We then pick it up in verse 16. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. That's significant here Because while not a biblical teaching, ancient Jewish culture believed that the soul did not fully leave the body until day four. There was an ancient tradition of believing that the soul hovered near the body for three days until it recognized that the corpse was fully decomposing. And then when it realized there was no chance of resuscitation, it would leave. Not a biblical teaching, not a scriptural teaching, but rather a cultural belief. So it's significant that it's noted here because when Jesus shows up, he is intentionally showing up when there, is, there could be no mistake that Lazarus being raised from the dead could be attributed to this cultural belief. If it had been two days, if it had been three days, maybe it could have been interpreted as the body suddenly resuscitating and you know now we're all good, we're fine. But it's been four days and in the Talmud, What's written is that the peak of grief begins at the end of day three, at the beginning of day four, because that is the recognition of there is no coming back. So Jesus arrives at the peak of Mary and Martha's grief. We pick that up in verse 18. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is to come into the world. And then we start to get into a really interesting section of this passage here, where Jesus comes face to face with their grief. Verse 28, and after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house 
comforting her. Notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. John 11.35 is known as the shortest verse in the Bible. And I think there are a lot of church jokes around it when we talk about memorizing scripture and then, you know, our 10-year-olds in the church come up and say, Jesus wept, I did it. But I think that we gloss over the significance of this a lot. And I don't think that it's insignificant that it is its own verse, that it is separate, that it is identified. Jesus wept. Imagine the God of the universe who created every intricate thing that we have in existence. Not only that, created Lazarus himself, shows up to raise the guy to life. He knows what's going to happen. He already knows what his plan is and that he's moving through with it. And yet he is deeply moved. He takes time to grieve with them. Where it says that Mary and Martha were weeping, that word used for weeping is this deep, wailing, full-body grief. Where it says that Jesus wept, the original Greek word for that is more of this sorrowful participation, this empathetic grief, where it's this this quiet crying, not not this full participation in this full body, but this quiet presence, this quiet accompaniment of being there with them and grieving with them. The passage tells us he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then when he arrives at the tomb, again, he is once more deeply moved. What does this tell us about Jesus? First, and not insignificantly, Jesus sees our tears. God sees our tears and is moved by them. He remembers them and he acts to dry them. The ancient Greek for that that passage, once more he's deeply moved, it literally means to snort like a horse, which is implying anger and indignation. Jesus is angry at what death has done to his friend. He is angry at how evil has showed up in his friend's lives. And Jesus wept, he identifies with others in their sorrow. And what's interesting here is I think there's a a comparison with how Jesus is showing up with people's lives versus how others are. Verse 37, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? 
Have you ever been in an incredibly painful situation and someone comes along and just states all of the what-ifs that could have prevented that situation from happening? Incredibly unhelpful, right? When you're in a situation where you're grieving something, you're challenged by something, what has happened in the past is not going to change. It still happened. It's still painful. And then someone comes along and lists all of the ways that it couldn't have happened. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't even necessarily reprimand them for their grief. There is a commentary on a lack of faith, but not for the grief, not for the sorrow, not for the pain of the evil interruption in their lives. Jesus identifies with their sorrow. He shows up, and he's not a spectator in it. He offers no pity, but rather he offers compassion. He joins in their lives. We pick it up then in 38b. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Their sorrow has a purpose and it is to the glory of God. And Jesus says this multiple times throughout this story, that it is for the glory of God that this is happening. I think this is a really telling piece of scripture, and I'm very grateful that it is included. When we think about how we write down accounts of our lives, what we choose to include and how we write that is very significant. What is included here and how it is written is very significant. At Amira, we are working with women who are exiting the commercial sex trade, and most of them have experienced some form of sex trafficking in the system of prostitution. And when we think about human trafficking, Globally, there, it's estimated there are about 50 million people trapped in systems of human trafficking. Within the United States, most of those folks are women and girls trapped in the system of prostitution under sex trafficking. I used to be one of them, actually in this area about 12 years ago. And uh, that's, those are overwhelming numbers. When we think about 50 million people, and then you take it to the United States, and it's anywhere between one and three million, and we think about their pain, turning tricks 10, 12, 15 times a night to make a quota, or servicing someone that you would never want to be in the same room with, doing things against your consent, but having the world believe that you want to be there 
because it's prostitution and if she's in it, then clearly it was her choice. All of those negative beliefs, all of those myths, all of the shame that comes with that. And uh, what we do is we're helping folks to exit this system. And exit is not a moment, exit is a journey because not only do you have to get out of those physical circumstances, but then it is a process that starts with grief. You are grieving the life that you lost, grieving the person you would have been if evil had not interrupted in such a significant way. And then it takes years to rebuild that life, to rebuild your identity, to rebuild a community, to move forward. It's not a moment, it's a journey. And I think that this passage brings a tremendous amount of hope for people who are on that journey, but also very, very specific instruction for how the church is to approach those grieving. First, it's an individual process. Jesus sees the individual. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He's not seeing folks as a catch-all. He's not seeing all humans in a box and saying we treat all, all people you know, with X, Y, Z. We approach everybody with a, this kind of a plan. He sees their individuality and their individual need and has an individual love for them. Mother Teresa said, if I look at the masses, I will do nothing, but I will act when I see the one. When we think about recovery and our approach to people who have experienced atrocities, and we think about human trafficking, we can get so overwhelmed as a church by thinking about the masses. But we act the best when we see the one. And it is by going after one and one and one and one that we actually end up reaching the masses. It is an individual process of showing each person that you are loved and we see you in your grief. Second thing I think we can take from this is that God is already showing up with a plan. The question is, are we going with him? In verse 16, as Jesus was getting ready to go to Judea, he had just been in Judea and they had been trying to kill him. This was not a safe place for Jesus to go. And in verse 16, it says, Then Thomas, called Dynamis, the New King James Version, tells us that he was also known as the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. That's a pretty downer statement. <laughs> Thomas is also known as the twin because he is the guy who looks the most like Jesus, physically. That's what the, the ancient church tradition tells us. So this guy who looks most like Christ is about to walk into a situation with Christ where he knows that people are trying to kill Jesus and Thomas is like, well, I'm the guy who looks the most like him. So all right, here we go. We're about to get ourselves killed. The Enneagram 8 in me sort of perks up here and is like, you know, if I had a plan to walk in somewhere and one of my friends was like, well, here we go. She's gonna get us all killed. I'd be like this little, are you kidding me? And Jesus, thankfully, is, he has a lot of patience for Thomas, but, but there's a contrast there of, of Thomas is not 
showing bravery here. This isn't like, full Scotland, and then running to your death for bravery. No, this is, this is Thomas not believing that Jesus is going to do it. This is Thomas walking with Jesus into a situation where they're in an environment where they just tried to kill Jesus. They're going back to that environment. Jesus has just told him that his friend is dead, and so they're going to go put themselves in danger of death for Jesus to not raise a dead guy to life. That's what Thomas is thinking here. Jesus has just said, I have a plan, and Thomas doesn't believe him. And I think that tells us something really important about us. How many times have we gone into a dire situation believing that nothing can be done about it? When we are working with folks exiting the commercial sex trade, I can't tell you how many people believe that nothing can be done about it. That nothing can be done about addiction. That nothing can be done about the lack of economic stability. That they can't turn their lives around, that we're, we're putting these situations in boxes, that we're putting people in boxes, and then the women that we work with believe that about themselves, that there is no hope. They don't believe that they can really, truly get out, and so often they stay in their circumstances because they have no, they have no hope of getting out. And what does that say about us, then, as a church, if we are following Jesus into a situation believing that it's not going to work? Jesus is going in with a plan. He's already showing up. The question is, will we show up with him and how will we show up when we do? And then we get to the meat of this story where Jesus arrives in their grief. He comes to the tomb. He weeps with them. And that is significant because it shows that Jesus is not only compassionate, but he is present. He is present. Working with folks coming out of horrors is not an easy task. And it is not something that I honestly want to do every single day. Because it's emotionally exhausting in a lot of ways. It's not easy to look at evil every day and believe that Jesus has a plan. This is an active choice. It takes discipline for us as a church to show up. And I think we gloss over that so often with just our, uh, our paradoxical statements or sort of um, uh, throw it to the wind mentality of just, well, um, you know, Jesus will take care of it and it'll be fine. Jesus will take care of it, it'll be fine. We say those things, we give ourselves platitudes, and then we look the other way. And how often are we showing up and weeping with people? How often are we walking with Jesus into dire circumstances, believing that he has a plan and showing up well? And ultimately, this is to the glory of God. It is a choice to show up, not an easy one, but one that must be chosen over and over and over again. Human trafficking is a $150 billion industry worldwide. It is the largest criminal enterprise in the world, and it preys upon people and treats people like products. 
coming back from that is a journey that takes years. It takes housing, it takes education, it takes jobs, it takes sobriety support, it takes communal connections, it takes mentorship, it takes food on the table, it takes utilities paid, it takes clothes on our back, it takes everything. When you think about taking someone from absolutely nothing and into independence and doing that in a short period of time, and when we're trying to do that in two, three, four years, it takes everything for us to show up and be present for folks. And what this passage shows us is how to do that. I really appreciated what you were sharing earlier about Sometimes we can have the idea, we show up and we're going to fix your problems. We, we know exactly what to do. Here's the checklist of how to do it. A, B, C, D, you'll be done. But it is an individual process. God has a plan for each of those individuals. And us showing up as a part of it, how we do that is significant. And in that process, it's not just a process of A, B, C, D, get it done and move on, but actually going through the grief going through the sorrow and sitting with people in those moments as they grieve the most atrocious pieces of their lives, but with the hope that there is more than this, with the hope that this is all leading to the glory of God, with the hope that there is life after this. And ultimately there is. Jesus walks in with a plan and he, he follows through. Lazarus is raised from the dead. When he said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you imagine being there and seeing this guy come out of the grave? I have these moments sometimes when I think about this passage. This happened recently. I walked, into a, uh, I walked up to a woman's porch going to visit her about two weeks ago. She had joined our program about two years ago. And when she had joined, she had just gotten away from her trafficker for the sixth, seventh time, something around there. Um, she had had a horrible uh, uh, physical altercation that had left her with an injury. And I remember moving her into that apartment with all of the things that she was facing. And then two years later, I walk up to the porch, she comes out the door an entirely different person. Her physical injuries were healed. She was wrapping up her bachelor's degree. She had full-time employment. She had reunited with her kids and had regular visitation with her kids and with her grandchild. She looked at me and she said, I have never had this much hope in my life until Amira showed up. And that was not an overnight process. It was two years of sitting and weeping, but also going through with a plan. And it made me think of this when she walked out that door, walked out her front porch to welcome me into her home, of Lazarus coming out of the tomb. That is significant and it is to the glory of God. And that is why we show up as a church. We show up with Christ, believing that he has a plan, even when it looks absolutely hopeless. Because it is when it looks absolutely hopeless that God shines the most. Your partnership with us is significant because you are coming alongside us as we bring hope to a 
a, a, a hidden population, folks who are not often seen in society, folks who you might see in jails or on the streets or on corners or on advertisements online, but not necessarily people that we talk about in, in, at the dinner table, not necessarily people that we think of when we're going to the grocery store. But most people who are trafficked in the United States in the system of prostitution are our neighbors. They were born and raised here in the United States. They are folks who have been vulner made vulnerable through poverty, through housing insecurity, through addiction, through teenage pregnancy, through all sorts of things that put someone at risk to be exploited by someone else. And your partnership is helping those people be seen. And that is significant. So this morning, as you walk away, think about the significance of Jesus weeping. Not only weeping with those folks, but what is happening in your life? Where is that sorrow in your life? Where do you feel like God is silent in your life? Perhaps not God is not being silent, but perhaps he's simply weeping with you. The God of the universe that brought everything into existence, including you, loves you individually enough to sit with you and weep with you, even though he already knows the end of the story. Let's pray.